Such an absolute blessing for us to be together on the first of the week, as the Lord has commanded, as He has exhorted us to be together, to stir one another up to love and good works. And yet it's not a chore. It is a blessing. It is a grace that God has given us to be able to come together in this way. We miss the ones that we don't see here with us. We know several are out traveling. Others are not feeling well. We're thankful for those who are here, for those who are online with us, and we're prayerful that this time together will build you up, will stir you up to love and good works, will help us to become the kind of servants that we need to be. A couple of weeks ago, I began a study looking at this concept of the fact that as Christians, we are at war. And it's an important thing that we recognize that. We spoke a lot last time about just recognizing the fact that the enemy has already engaged us. We're at war whether we want that to be the case or not. We're at war whether we recognize it or not, and we are going to be defeated if we don't take an active attitude about being at war. If we lived in the middle of a war-torn country, we would not leave our homes without first preparing for the reality of the war that we live in. And we are fighting in a spiritual war. There are spiritual battles raging all around us and within us, even as we speak this moment. Satan is not letting up, and he's trying to insert himself even into our worship here as our minds wander to other things and aren't focused on God as they ought to be. You are at war. But fortunately, as we learned last time, the battle is the Lord's. It is a war that is winnable. It is quite winnable. Every single battle is winnable because the Lord is fighting for us and fighting with us. He's on our side and wants us to be victorious. And today we're going to look a little bit more about what that looks like on a personal level. If we are at war, then we certainly must put on the armor of God. As Chris has just read for us there in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll come back to that text more toward the end of the lesson. But I want us to think about what it means to have this armor that is from God. In fact, he says, put on the whole armor of God. He's given us a lot to work with. The first thing we need to recognize is this is not a new concept. This is not something that Paul invents in Ephesians chapter 6. Obviously, he's inspired of God, but it's not something God first spoke about in Ephesians chapter 6. We began last time looking at this battle between David and Goliath. I'd like to go back there again, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Because I think there is such a, uh, a parable for us in this. You have this tiny young man going up against this giant and yet he's victorious. And here we often feel that we are tiny as we go on to this stage against Satan and all of his forces. And yet God assures us of victory if we'll trust in him. And so as David trusted in God's protection, not in man's armor, he was victorious. We'll start in 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. <laughs> David's not saying, I can beat a lion and a bear. He's saying, God delivered me from the lion and the bear, and I trust in him. And I trust that certainly 
this uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the armies of the Lord, who is saying that he cannot be defeated, that God will certainly set him down. So David trusted in God. Saul does not. Saul, in the next text here, puts his own armor on David, and we'll see what effect that has, starting at verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. He took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So Saul doesn't trust in God. He begins to clothe David with his own armor, but Saul's a grown man. David's a, a young boy still. And so obviously the armor doesn't fit. He hasn't tested it. There's no way it's going to work. And so David would rather take the armor off and go face the Philistine with nothing but his trust in God. But that's what we need. This giant is not going to beat God. In fact, David has already recognized, as he tells Goliath later, this battle is the Lord's. You have defied the armies of the living God. You have called out and blasphemed God, and he is going to deliver you into my hand. So David understood that God would protect and deliver the soldier that's going out in righteousness for his name's sake. Now, how does David know that? Well, God has long revealed himself before David's day as being the protector, the one that God's people should be leaning on. As early as Genesis 15, for the first time, we see God called a shield. There, as uh, Abraham is worried about the, the blessing that God said he's going to give him, it's interesting that in the context, this comes after what I would call the First World War, as Abraham has gone out with several kings to fight against those who had taken Lot into captivity. And he's been victorious there with the Lord's blessing. But in, John, uh, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Certainly David knows the story of Abram and, and his uh, forefathers going through the history in the book of Genesis. David knows that. David knows what we learned last time as we looked at in Exodus when Pharaoh's army was bearing down on the Israelites and they're trapped in by the sea. And Moses said, you need to hold your peace. You need to stand and let the Lord fight for you and give you the victory. We looked at that text in, in Exodus 14 last week. But let's look at Exodus 15. And what comes out in Moses' song of victory there. Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then down at verses 11 through 13, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. David knows this as he's going out to face Goliath. He knows what God has already done for his forefathers, that God is fighting as a man of war. And then in the blessing, David certainly knew this as well. Uh, the blessing that Moses gives uh, to the people as he's leaving them in Deuteronomy chapter 33. 
love the language here, this poetry, this, this psalm of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 at verse 26. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and his excellence, in His excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone in a land of grain and new wine. His heaven shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. Who's coming out against Israel? God's enemy, the Philistines. And David knows this as he goes up with the Lord as his shield and sword. These are concepts that have come from early on in Israel's history. And David certainly knows these. He rightly recognizes God's power to defend. I want to look at just a few psalms. There are lots of psalms that mention God in this way. I want to look at a few that are specifically from David. I want to see inside of his mind what he's thinking about later on as he's king and he's having some struggles running from Saul and from others who would take his life. But in Psalm 3, we see how much David recognizes and relies on God as his protection. Psalm 3, verses 1 through 3, this is when David is fleeing from Absalom. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. It doesn't matter what others are saying. David recognizes that God is his shield. In Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to read all of these. There's several in there. I'm just going to leave for your uh, for you to peruse later. But uh, in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, and uh, this is when Saul has uh, finally gone away and, and David's been spared uh, finally from Saul's advances. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. We sing these very words still. Look at the, this last part, verses 30 through 35. You'll recognize also from the song that's based on this psalm. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. David trusted rightfully in the Lord. Let's skip forward to Psalm 33. I want to look at verse 20. Psalm 33 and verse 20 because this really sets the tone for the kind of battle that David understood he was in where he says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. This is a spiritual battle, he understands, that even in his battles against Absalom and his battles against Saul, that the true engagement was spiritual. And so it's a shield of the soul that he's looking for. The rest of those psalms are there. If you like these slides later, I'd be glad for you to have those. Those are all psalms of David. There are lots of psalms from Solomon and others that also mention God as his protector and shield. But I think you get the idea that this is not something new. David, the great king, the man after God's own heart, trusted in the Lord and found his salvation and his strength and his armor in God. 
In Isaiah, though, there's another concept, as we see that God himself is putting on armor. In Isaiah 59, and I think that Paul is drawing heavily from this image. When we look at Ephesians chapter 6 later, it'll be a little more apparent. In Isaiah 59, we're going to begin at the second part uh, of verse 15. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. That should sound really familiar to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. The context here is God's salvation and his judgment. Often those two work hand in hand. You'll recognize Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 as the part where it says that it's our sins that have separated us from God. That there's no one who is seeking after truth and there's no justice that's come. And so when we get down to verse 17, God is upset about that and says, I'll just bring justice of my own. <laughs> These men aren't seeking my justice. Verses 18 and 19, he says he's going to come down and judge according to their deeds. So he's bringing salvation to the one who was lost in sin. And he has to bring it of himself because there's no one who's searching for justice and truth. But he puts on his armor. In the context... The one who puts on this armor, if you look at verse 20, is the Redeemer, his Christ, who will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. He's the one who puts on the armor. I want to suggest to you that by the time we get to Ephesians 6 then, Paul is leaning on this idea. He's making an allusion to the fact that Christ has won the victory and he's clothed his servants with his own armor. This is the armor of God, after all. God is the Redeemer. He's the Christ who's come. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's a quotation there from uh, Psalm 68. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is Ephesians 4, 7. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, we'll recognize these gifts as the teaching gifts in the context here. But when we begin to look at the armor of God, we'll see that all of the pieces of God's armor are also related to his word that is given for the teaching and the building up and the training of the soldier who is going to fight the spiritual battle. And Paul uses the same language then in Ephesians 6 that we just saw in Isaiah 59, this breastplate of righteousness, this helmet of salvation. It's obviously the same concept of the armor that's being talked about. So I want to suggest to you that Paul is making a clear reference to Isaiah 59 when he talks about the armor of God that we've been given. Paul urges us, as we get back into Ephesians now, to take full advantage of this gift of God. He says in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That should be a reassuring to us. He's speaking sort of in a passive way here. Be strong. Rely on this strength that is coming from God. God wants to strengthen us for His battle. Now, we've got to receive that. We've got to work at it. But God wants to strengthen us. That is the overarching message. And as we've seen through these psalms that David laid out for us, the one who trusts in God is the one who is strengthened. It's interesting to me that Paul gives his own example of this, not in Ephesians, but in 2 Corinthians. If you'll open with me there in 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, when he's speaking of a time when he himself was in a battle and he went to the Lord several times praying for help, he learned to trust in God 
through this battle that he engaged in. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, Paul had received these visions, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. (laughs) What is Paul saying here? That the strength that he's taking advantage of is the strength of the Lord. It's the fullness of his might that Paul himself could not resist. He really began this letter saying he had even despaired of his own life so that his trust was in the Lord who gives life. What an amazing thing, Paul speaking of this. And it's interesting that in the context he says that this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. He's full aware this is a spiritual battle. No matter what his struggle is, even if it's a physical seeming struggle, it's a spiritual battle. To maintain his diligence and his service to the Lord, he needs to lean on the Lord. We dare not forget that the battle is the Lord's. And in fact, we're going to see in verse 12 that we are servants. We're inscripted in his army because we're executing judgment against evil forces. That's what this is all about. The world will think we're talking crazy. Now, there's evil forces all around us. There's this war going on. You don't see it. But you're under attack. We established that last time. When we're truly aware of that, we'll recognize that every decision I make is an engagement with the enemy. And I've got to be willing to fight against evil in every form. So he wants to give us his strength for the battle. He wants to arm us with the power of his might. He's not saying, you got this, Carl, go take it. He's saying, I've got this, Carl, go take it. That's what he told the Israelites when they were going to go in and take the promised land. He says, I'm giving it in your hand. You can't take it, but I'm giving it to you. And yet they were fearful. We'll see that in a moment. Look at this power of God's might, how often it's mentioned in the book of Ephesians. I want you to think about this this context. In Ephesians 4, we already saw in verse 7 that Christ has won this victory and he's been giving gifts in accordance with the measure of the gift that he received. Now, he won the victory entirely. He abundantly received all of the spoils of victory. Has he got enough to distribute? Absolutely. He's got it all. He's the creator. And so he's got this gift that he can just keep giving and keep giving. Are we looking for it? Are we we seeking to accept it? That's the measure of the gift he wants to give us, but we've got to engage. But going back then to Ephesians 1, I want to just see this phrase over and over in Paul's writing in Ephesians here. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 18, he's praying that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see how important belief in the resurrection is to the soldier who's going out to fight? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you are just a miserable person. You've lost it all. If your hope is only in this life, we are of all men the most pitiable. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. The resurrection is, is imperative because it shows the power God has. 
to subdue all things to himself, even the thing we see as most powerful, death. Death is nothing to God. He can overcome death. That's giving us the victory. It's real power. And he says, I want you to be tuned into that power that he proved when he resurrected Christ from the dead. He'd already begun to show it in Lazarus and others that he brought. But when he resurrected Christ, he just triumphed over evil once for all. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, he brings up this idea again. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, I have become a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. How is Paul able to reach so many people? Paul, who was the great antagonizer of the church, became the great preacher. He took the gospel into the entire world, even into Caesar's very household. How? By the effective working of the grace of God and his power working in him. Not just in him. Verse 16. And that he would grant you, this is Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might through his spirit in the inner man. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. You see what Paul's saying? Over and over and over. God's not saying take your arm and go in there and win the battle. He's saying, I am abundantly equipping you with power over power over power. I've got this. <laughs> Just go. Go fight. I'll give you the victory. But what happens is we put our trust in men instead. <laughs> well, we hope that things will get fixed in this country, so we better vote somebody in who will take care of it. Maybe will, maybe won't. Probably won't. <laughs> well, we trust too much in the government. Maybe we trust too much in the preacher. Well, I've got to find a church that's got a good, capable preacher because then I'll be able to do a lot. No, then you'll rely on the preacher to do everything. You've got to be fighting. <laughs> we, like a good commentator, well, that guy writes really good stuff. I'm going to get all his commentaries because he's the guy who helps me understand the Bible. Great. That's a good tool. But don't just rely on him. Study the Bible for yourself. But so often what happens is we just rely on ourselves. And then we get discouraged because we keep failing over and over and over. <laughs> We must rely in God. These people have always struggled with this. Psalm 118 verse 9 says, Don't put your trust in princes. Put your trust in God. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 8, when uh, Hezekiah is receiving this, this warning that they're all going to be wiped out and the gods of the lands haven't stopped the Assyrians from coming in, he lays out the letter before God and prays. But before that, he encourages the people. And he says, The one who fights for them has an arm of flesh. The one who fights for, fights for us is the Lord. And the people were encouraged. Hezekiah was a good man. He remembered what David knew. And he strengthened himself in that knowledge. We must trust in God and not ourselves. Well, Paul says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. This is going back to Ephesians 6 now. It's something we've got to take very seriously. Sometimes we think, well, he's got all that armor over here. There's, I might need the helmet today. I better grab that one on my way out. Oh, this breastplate, ah, I didn't use it yesterday. I better put it on today just in case. So we take a piece here and there. We've got to take this battle seriously. We cannot fight mostly by our strength. And then once in a while we'll call on him when it feels like it's really getting heavy. No, the whole battle has to be fought in his might. In Mark chapter 9, I want to read this text. We're going to read, uh, allude to it again later. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus has gone up into the mountain. He's transfigured before uh, Peter, James, and John up in the mountain. But the other nine apostles are down below. 
And this man brings his son, who's possessed by a demon, brings it to these apostles. He's looking for Jesus. He can't find Jesus, but he knows his apostles are capable of casting out the demon. So he goes to them, and they can't cast it out. And so there's an issue. And as they begin to tell Jesus about this, look at his response. Let's start in verse 17 of Mark chapter 9. One of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. He's talking about the apostles there, the faithless generation. And you'll see why in just a moment. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus casts out the demon. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. (laughs) That tells us something about these faithless apostles. They hadn't even bothered to pray before they tried to cast out this demon. Can you see the picture? (laughs) The first time, perhaps, that God had sent them out, that Jesus has, has given them this ability, sends them out to cast out demons as they're preaching, and this demon comes up, what do you think they did? (laughs) Oh, Lord, please help me. There's no way I can handle this on my own. What about the second time? What about the 15th time or the 25th time? Can you imagine you've got nine apostles gathered here at the base of this mountain, maybe a little jealous because Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus doing who knows what, and somebody brings along a demon, oh, I got it, I'll take that one. And he didn't even bother to pray. And then the other apostles perhaps getting involved, none of them bothered to pray. Jesus says, you're a faithless generation. They needed him. They couldn't do this on their own. That's what Jesus is saying to them. We can't do it either. Oh, I got this. I've been fighting already for however however long. I I can handle this. But what happens is we try to go in on our own and take on a spiritual battle in a carnal way. And then we get discouraged. Might even blame God. Oh, he just keeps putting more on me than I can handle. And I've only put on the helmet that day. I've only put on, strapped on the shoes that day. I've only put on a little bit of the armor, and I'm only using it once in a while, and then I fail and can't figure out why. It's amazing, because their lack of faith really affected the man who brought his son. Because he says, if you can cast out the demon, please do something. Jesus says, if? If you can believe, all things are possible for who believes. The man who had brought his son in the first place, who had trusted so much that even the apostles, didn't even need to be Jesus, could have been the apostles, could cast this demon out. When they couldn't, his faith began to falter. He says, help me with my lack of faith. What about us? Is our lack of faith sometimes causing the ones around us to falter in the faith they were developing? Because they had seen that God was granting victory and then we thought, oh, but I got this one. (laughs) We ought to be careful about how we're affecting those around us by our wrong attitudes and not taking on the armor of God. There's an objective behind all this, if we go back to Ephesians 6, 11, that we need to be able to, to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's saying we can't stand against the devil's wiles on our own. We need his armor to be able to do that. But the point is, we're not going to retreat or lie down. That's defeat. We've got to stand. When the devil comes, we can't just say, okay, this time you win. No, we've got to stand. There's no, you're not getting beyond this line. Draw the line in the sand. This is as far as you're coming. And then we want to keep moving that line forward, don't we? We're not retreating against the wiles of the devil. This word here is interesting from the Greek. The word literally means methodical. He has a plan that's crafty, and he's just going to keep going. 
He's just going to keep doing it. Jesus was tempted at all points as we were, except without sin. We are probably only tempted in one or two points. We don't have to take the full brunt because as soon as the devil finds his entry, that's where he just keeps coming back. We just keep letting him in. Jesus put up a guard all around, and the devil had to keep trying in every single way that we're tempted, and Jesus never gave in. He doesn't fight fair. He's always trying to find a way in. We've got to be aware of and ready for the battle at all times, which means we've got to just have this armor on. God's given it to us, and he's told us to put it on. Then in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Wrestling indicates there's a personal engagement in the fight. Unless you're from Kentucky where it's wrestling, where you're just watching somebody else. But the idea is wrestle. You're going to get in there and you're going to throw the opponent down or he's going to throw you down. That's what wrestling is. This is not the kind of a fight where we get to stand off at a distance. Now, he's cheating. He's got fiery darts he's throwing at us from a distance. We'll see those in a minute. But we've got to get right up and engage him. We don't have that. What we've got is armor and we've got a sword. It's going to be a close battle. It's going to be a wrestling match. And so there's personal engagement. We're not just spectators as somebody else fights. So often I fear that, well, we're going to let the preacher fight our spiritual battles for us. <laughs> Whatever this issue is that I don't get, well, hopefully the preacher can figure it out and then that'll just fight our battles for us. We'll let the elders handle that. Every one of us is to be engaged in this wrestling match. Every one of us is being engaged in our homes. The preacher doesn't live there with me. The elder doesn't live there with me. I better be engaged at every moment when I'm at work, at school, wherever I am. I'm wrestling. Here's a sobering thought. Commentator Colley Caldwell says that in many ancient Greek wrestling matches, the loser was slaughtered or had his eyes gouged out. The Christian wrestles with death and blindness. The devil wants to blind us. He wants to kill us. Can you imagine the desperation of the ancient contestant as he's wrestling, knowing that if he loses, it's death or his eyes gouged out? Our contest is no less desperate against sin and ignorance. We don't think of it that way. <laughs> it's just a little sin. It's just a little trip up. No, it is a desperate battle for our souls. And the enemy is not some weakling. We tend to think this. There certainly is uh, some teaching that, you know, once you've got the Spirit of Christ, the devil can't touch you. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does say we can resist. But the Bible says he is powerful. Look at the language Paul uses here. We're fighting against principalities. That's like whole nations. <laughs> powers, rulers of darkness. There are powers much greater than our own. We couldn't stand up against a nation. Most of the time we couldn't stand up against one big guy. David stood up against an entire nation in the person of Goliath, but he knew that God was in the fight. The enemy is also super evil. This is not an enemy that's going to once in a while take pity on us and let us off easy. He's, easily, he's evil. He's wicked. He is the ruler of the darkness of this age. He has a spiritual armies, that word host we looked at last time, as armies of wickedness. It's not like we're just engaging in some weak battle. We don't stand a chance without God. And we need everything he's giving us. And so he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. He said the same thing again. <laughs> he's already said that back a couple of verses ago. The idea is don't just put it on, use it. <laughs> it's not just armor that you can stand there and kind of look pretty on the battlefield. That's not it. This is not armor for show. We're used to seeing suits of armor like in a museum and they're all polished up. That's not what they look like in the middle of battle. They got holes in them. They got blood on them. They got scrapes all over them. They are not something that's just for show. They were meant to protect the body. And we have got to put on God's armor and use it. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul already had been talking about this concept where he told them in verse 24, put on the new man. And he's, then he tells them through the rest of chapter 4 and 5 how to do that and how to use this new man. Therefore, put away lying. Therefore, speak the truth in love over and over and over again how to practice the use of this new man. That's the idea he's doing with the armor here. Put on the armor and then take it up and use it. Go into battle with it. Live what you're, what you're doing. He said first that we needed to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now he says, if we put this armor on, it'll make us able to withstand in the evil day. The point is that with this, with this armor on, our victory is guaranteed. God says you will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil if you have the armor. You'll be able to withstand in the evil day if you have the armor. You will withstand. I'm guaranteeing it. But without it, I'm guaranteeing you're going to lose. <laughs> Those are the only options. It's either defeat, destruction, or victory, destroying the enemy. And those, that's it. There's no middle ground. We don't get to play around with this. So God is very serious about this. So he says you're going to stand against the devil, and you're going to withstand in the evil day. What day is evil? Well, Paul already talked about that in Ephesians 5, verse 16. Redeem the time because the days are evil. All of them. Sufficient for the day is its own evil, Jesus said. Every single day is an opportunity for us to be destroyed in the battle. Now, you may say, I thought I was going to talk about the armor of God. I'm going to. We're getting there. But I need you to understand why this is such an important matter. We are going to lose without the armor of God. Once we've done everything that God has prepared us with, then we stand, verse 13 says. Once he prepares you, you stand firm. I mentioned before Joshua and Caleb. I mentioned before when the people were going to go into the promised land. They go in and they look at it and they come back and say, we can't take it. There's giants that we look like grasshoppers before them. Both Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord is giving us this land. Let's go take it. And the people said, let's stone them for saying that. They trusted in God. That's the reason they were going to go in. And God would have given them the land right then and there. Instead, 40 years they wandered before Joshua and Caleb, the only two that were allowed to then go in and see that land. 40 years. James 4 verse 7 says, If you resist the devil, he will flee. Now what James is talking about is when you're fully clothed in the armor of God and you resist, you stand in the day of battle, the devil's going to run. He's a bully. He doesn't expect people to fight back. When you start fighting back, he's going to run, try to find another way in sometime. You've got to stand firm. So let's look at this whole armor of God, these next few verses here. I think it's beautiful. There's, a, there's an image here that Paul is conjuring up for us to see that I hope we'll be able to see that I'll help you all see here. The first thing is you've got to gird your waist with truth. It's the belt that really holds the entire panoply together. We sing in that song, the panoply of God. That's the Greek word here. It just means the whole arrangement, all of it together. All of the defensive and offensive weapons all together is a panoply. And so the truth is the belt that holds it all together. It allows the Christian properly to battle. We cannot fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness with anything other than truth. It's not just religion that's going to help us win. It's not just having some kind of a game plan. It is truth that will help us win. And if we don't love the truth, we are not going to win against the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Look how Paul describes this in 2 Thessalonians. This is such a frightening text to me. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Same battle. 
And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There were a few battles in the Old Testament where it looked like God's army was insufficient to win the battle. And they go down to the battle and God has sent a rumor into the other camp and the evil people all kill themselves. Gideon's battle was one of those. There's another couple of those where God does that. They all kill each other. God sent them strong delusion that they might believe the lie. They had rejected the truth. They were fighting against God and his people. And so God allowed them to believe a lie that caused them to go to their own destruction. We cannot fight spiritual hosts of wickedness except with truth. And so we cannot accept any compromise with truth because it brings devastating consequences on us. We have to employ absolute truth and not just some kind of religious truisms. Once in a while there's these kind of kernels of truth that come out of the Bible that someone will use as kind of their catchphrase. That's not the same thing as engaged in the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Whew! These must be people really easy to spot from a distance. Look how evil they are. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. <laughs> They're not easy to spot. They look like sort of godly people. Even with that huge, ugly front of things that Paul described there, these people have a form of godliness. They've denied its power. They've rejected the truth that is what gives godliness its power. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, as Johns and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. They will progress no further, for their folly will manifest to all, as theirs also was. They're men who've rejected the truth. They look sort of spiritual on the outside. Maybe us. We better be careful with that. Rejecting the truth and not accepting only the truth in our fight has devastating consequences. That's where we start with the armor of God. And then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness protects the heart and the vitality of the soldier in this battle as he faces the enemy. Notice, he's talking about a breastplate. It covers the front, the chest. There's no armor that mentions anything about the back. You're not turning your back on the enemy. You will die for sure then. You're going to front the enemy. You're going to face him. And you have a breastplate that gives you protection for your heart. And that breastplate is righteousness. Righteousness is the practice of that which is right and good. It's not knowing what's right and good. It's doing what's right and good, the way that God has revealed it. Our hearts are protected by righteous living. Now, that makes so much sense when I say it that way. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. In this battle, if we're going to win this battle, our lives must be as righteous as what we talk about. <laughs> We've got to put it into practice. It's the practice of righteous living that protects our heart as we go in face first into the battle against the enemy. The enemy really wants to pierce our heart and turn it from God. Proverbs 4.23 says, take careful heed to your heart because that's where the wellsprings of life flow from. Whatever your heart is doing, that's what the rest of your life is going to be. Think about Jesus using the heart as the example. In Mark chapter 7, he quotes from Isaiah. These people draw near to me with their lips, but 
Their heart is far from me. These are really religious people, but their heart's not with God. They're not fighting the good fight. Romans 1.21, these people that weren't thankful and had rejected the truth of God for the lie, their foolish hearts had become darkened. Their hearts was the, was the key. And that's where Satan was going. <laughs> he was going after the heart. They didn't have the life of righteousness as a breastplate. He says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Soldier of Christ is going to make a stand, but he's not going to be stationary. It's not that kind of a stand. It's a standing against evil. As I said, we keep drawing a line of sand more out in the front. We're moving. We're advancing against the enemy. We've got to be prepared to march the gospel of peace into the enemy's territory. One of the texts I've quoted from several times up here, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the attitude of the evangelist, of the one who's taking the gospel to other people, doesn't just mean a preacher, an evangelist, one who's taking the, the, the good news of the gospel is to defeat the enemy. 2 Timothy 2.24 A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. When your feet are prepared with the gospel of peace, you're going to defeat the enemy and you're going to rescue those that he's taken captive. That's the point. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took captivity captive, is what Paul quoted in Ephesians 4. He's quoting from Psalm 68. Jesus led captivity captive. He rescued those who had been taken by, against their will by the devil. Above all, he says, going back to Ephesians 6, verse 16, taking the shield of faith. A shield? You mean I'm going to get attacked? It's a war! Of course you're going to get attacked. God is saying, take your shield. You're going to need it because the enemy is coming. Expect the attacks. Sometimes we go out thinking, well, God's on my side. No one's going to attack me. Goliath advanced on David. <laughs> David beat him, but Goliath was coming at him. It was an attack. God gave him the victory. They had to go through the Red Sea. God didn't just say, you know, stand here and I'll teleport you to the other side. They had to advance. But God gave them the victory. But there was a battle and we need a shield. And that shield is our committed conviction to what God has revealed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more I study, the more I dig in, the more I'm going to have that conviction. The facts that God has revealed, the evidence that he's given me of things unseen, that's what builds my faith. And it is effective to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's when we don't know the facts that God has presented. It's when these philosophies begin to creep in that try to weigh against the truth of what God has revealed, that our faith begins to waver and that shield gets let down and the fiery darts come in and wreak havoc in our house, wreak havoc inside our armor, and they will tear us down. Our shield is the strength of our faith. And take the helmet of salvation. I want to explain to you how important this piece of the equipment is. What a beautiful thing here. This helmet gives us security against our head being bashed in and being killed in the middle of the battle. The security comes from the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins. That makes the soldier ready to go right in and confront the enemy without any fear of death. <laughs> Revelation 2.10, Jesus was straightforward. He said, some of you are going to be put in prison. Some of you are going to be tried until death. But stay faithful until death and you'll get the crown of life. <laughs> that knowledge that their death was not going to be the end. Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13, that blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. <laughs> this is written to people who are in the midst of intense persecution, where death was a real possibility. 
our death is probably not going to be physical in our battle with Satan, at least not now. But it's a real death nonetheless. And we need to be aware of it, and we need this helmet. We need this, this uh, certainty of our salvation to protect our head. Think about Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. They were beaten, and they went out rejoicing. They could have killed them. They're rejoicing because they were worthy to suffer for Christ's name. In uh, Acts 12, James is killed. Peter's in prison, sleeping between the guards when he knows the very next day he's also going to be killed. How is that possible? Salvation is a helmet on his head. He's not worried if they kill him. He's going to be with the Lord. And if the Lord decides to set him free, then he'll go serve the Lord. Salvation is a helmet. Allows him to go headfirst into the battle without worrying about what's going to happen because he's assured of his salvation. That's a blessing that God has given us. Finally, taking the sword of the Spirit in verse 17. It's the only offensive weapon, and it is sufficient to defeat Satan. It's the Word of God. When Jesus wanted to defeat Satan, when, when Satan came against him with all of his attacks, every time Jesus refuted with the Word of God, over and over and over again. The Word of God can build us up so that we're complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is defeating Satan a good work? Absolutely. And God is equipping us for that with the sword of His Spirit. In Revelation 19, both in verses 15 and 21, it's the sword that comes out of Christ's mouth that mows down all the enemies. That's all we need, really, to defeat Satan. When we put this armor on, we'll recognize that this sword of the Spirit is just connected to everything else we've had there. All of this, the truth, is revealed by God. Righteousness is God's revelation put in practice. The gospel of peace, that's what He's telling you to take out to other people. The shield of faith, our faith comes from hearing the Word of God. The helmet of salvation, that assurance of salvation, comes from what we learn about Christ and His resurrection. And then the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. All of these, this whole armor, is from the Word of God and abundantly available to the one who will practice what it teaches. Finally, he says in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and all supplication for all the saints. It's an abundance of prayer always. <laughs> Remember what happened when they didn't pray as they went to cast out the demon in Mark chapter 9? It didn't happen. They lost that battle. That was a minor skirmish compared to the real battle. They lost that battle. We cannot afford to enter this battle without absolute dependence on God. There's an old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. When you realize it's life or death every moment, you better be turning to God. We need to realize that we're at war, and we need to give ourselves truly to the Lord and to what he's given us to defeat the wicked forces of Satan. You are at war. Whether or not you realized it before, I pray that you realize it now. And I pray that you understand that God wants you to win each and every battle of this war and the great war overall. God wants you to win. He's assured you of victory. If you'll do things the way he says, that promised land is just given into your hand. The question is, have you put on the armor of God? It's an urgent thing. In Romans chapter 13, another beautiful image. Paul himself uh, speaking here as well. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. That's what we need if we're going to succeed in this battle. Won't you put on the armor of light? Won't you put on Christ? If you're not a Christian, you can put on Christ this very day. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, we learn that Christ is put on in baptism. If you're willing to come forward confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
repenting of your sins and enter into baptism, you can put on Christ today. We'd love to help you with that. Anyone who's online would like to do that, please enter in contact with us. But if you are a Christian and you haven't been fighting as you should, if you're losing in this battle, there are lots of fellow soldiers right around you. God has given us each other to hold each other up. We can stand against the devil and withstand in the evil day. Every day is an opportunity to stand or fall. We want to help you stand. If we can help you do that, whatever your need may be, come forward and make it known while we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.